Imagine trying to put together a puzzle and you have some of the pieces and there's other pieces all over the place. You don't have any idea where they are. And some of those pieces don't want to be found. And some of those pieces don't even know they're part of the puzzle. But you still have to put together those pieces in order to solve your puzzle. The story that I'm about to present to you is just that. It's it's a young girl growing into a woman who is trying to put together the pieces of her life under the most difficult circumstances that you can imagine. This episode was a whole movie. I'm not sure I even got it all. It might require a part two, but it was a whole movie. And, you know, I like sitting down with people who, who captivate me, who, who people I know, and I've known this woman now for three fourths of my own life. Over 30 years, and a lot of this stuff I didn't know, even though I observed a good part of it. And even with that, I was hanging on every word. And I and I believe if you sit and listen to it, you will too. I'm very proud to present this episode of Vulnerability is the New Sexy. I hope you enjoy it. So I want to ask you straight out, um, t- what? how much do you know about your origin story from like your birth until you ended up a Valentine? Um, so uh, very little, actually. Um, I know that I was conceived somewhere in Colorado um, in early 1978. Um, I actually got to know more of the story when I got to meet my bio dad, because the bio mom didn't give me much information when I met her. So from what I know, they met working together and um, she made it sound like they were only together three months. My dad said that they lived together three months, um, but had worked together a lot longer than that. Um, And that they broke up before she knew she was pregnant. Um, So from that point on, he doesn't know what happened, right? So she, at some point, came back to Minnesota and had me. And I don't know what happened from December 13th to January 9th. I'm not quite sure if the adoption agency put me in a temporary foster home or not. Um, But January 9th, I went with my parents and officially became the Val- of Brenda Valentine. Um, I didn't have a name prior to that other than baby, the last name of my bio mom. And that was it. I didn't have uh, a name. And uh, my mom and dad are the one whose name, 
who named me. Do you know if uh, you spent like any time you went straight from the hospital to or did you like spend some time in like no I think the adoption agency um like when I did research when I was younger the adoption agency would have temporary foster homes for infants or for kids in transition between um leaving the parents and going to their adoptive family so I believe I was in a foster home for that three weeks because I didn't have any complications. It stated that the the birth was um, full term and no complications. So um, yeah, I believe it was like a, a transition foster care or something. <clears throat> How much do you know about uh, the Valentines coming to pick you up and what they went through in that, that experience? <laughs> Okay. My mom loved to tell stories. So from their perspective, it was, um, you know, they adopted my brother, Brian first, who was um, from Seoul, Korea. They adopted him um, right from Seoul through the adoption agency. The adoption agency uh, was a Minnesota-based adoption agency. Um they so they had been I you know in the adoption process it's very long process um to be vetted I guess as parents and home like they do home visits they um the parents have to give their background information and family makeup and religious uh affiliation and so um for my brother um and it was a Lutheran um the adoption agency is a Lutheran-based, Christian-based uh, adoption agency. And so uh, my bro- they had been vetted from my brother. They said they wanted another baby and they wanted a baby girl. Perks of adoption is you get to pick what sex you get. Um, my parents are both white. Uh, they said they didn't care what kind of baby they would get. My mom used to use the phrase, I didn't care if they were pink with orange polka dots they just wanted a baby um they were not able to have kids and so um apparently my biological mom came to the adoption agency late in her pregnancy and um when she came uh I guess the social worker thought my parents would be a great fit for me and they contacted my parents and said hey we have a baby girl on the way. Would you guys like to move forward? And my mom and dad jumped on it. So three weeks after I was born, I was in their home. So your your bio mom never intended to to keep you. This. So I I don't think so. I think that that relationship had ended. What she told me when I did return is, okay, wait, what she told me or what I was told like my whole life was that she, um, they didn't say whether she contemplated or not. They just said that she came late in the pregnancy and that she wanted me to be in a home with two parents, um, in a Christian home and that she, um, wasn't able to provide for me at the time. She was 20 years old at the time. When I met her, she pretty much reiterated that that sentiment. Um, she said that um, she 
loved me very much and that she was not in school at the time. She hadn't finished school. She didn't have a job and she didn't know where my dad was because they had broken up before she knew she was pregnant. Um, Back in 78, there was no cell phones. There's no, you know, really way to search for people. I mean, there was no social media. There was no way to really find him. And he, he reiterated that when I met him and we talked about the story, he was like, there would have been no way for her to find me. I moved to California and they were in Colorado. So, um, so I don't know if she necessarily contemplated to keep me, but I know that she was very thoughtful in what she wanted for me. Let me, when did you uh, first realize that you were adopted? I honestly do not remember a time I didn't know. And I only say that um, my parents raised us to feel as adoption was a celebration. So like, I, I remember being older and like bragging about being adopted. And then people would say, sorry. And I was like, why are people saying that? Because in our family, we weren't raised as it to be a secret or something negative. So, and because I think our family was so different, there wasn't really a way to not notice that we were adopted or different. And um, so you feel like just from the gate, you wanted. let me ask you this. When did you understand that your family was different from I don't know. Other other, other yeah. families. Yeah. Again, I don't feel like there was ever a time where I thought we were the same because we we physically look different. So it was always obvious. Um, I will say maybe the better question is. My first experience of other people seeing it as different. Okay. As noticeable, um, there was a restaurant in St. Paul that we frequented. It was um, one of my dad's favorite called Coffee Cup. And um, I, I probably was about six years old, maybe five years old. I was really young, but I remember walking in and this older white man was just staring at us. And I, I remember feeling like, why is he staring at us? Like, it was an awkwardly stare. And, but then it was all of a sudden the man says to my dad, you have a great looking family, sir. But it was the stare. And then kind of like a, trying to figure out how we all kind of fit together. Mm-hmm. But then also it was a compliment. Like he was complimenting my dad at the same time, but it, it didn't feel good to be stared at, I guess, mm-hmm. as a kid. Yeah. So in that moment, you started realizing that people saw y'all different, even yes. though in your mind, you know, this is where this it's is at. just what it is. Yes. Yes. It is. I think we've already established that I have the better memory between the two of us. <laughs> so you Maybe. might not, you might not remember this, but I remember it because it, uh, you know, it it was an, an impressionable moment for me. Um, we were out on a bus stop and this is the early nineties, obviously. And, um, we're talking and, you know, I'm admittedly and uncomfortably, you know, a, a, a dumbass little kid. 
So I start making fun of your brother and, and, and the fact that he's Asian and you hit me and put me, it hit me hard enough for me to put, to put me down. Like I, I was. <laughs> okay. I was a tomboy growing up and yeah. I, even if I don't remember specifically that story, I would a hundred percent. I could see definitely see myself doing that. I embarrassed my brother all the way through his junior high years, where he stopped talking to me. I would feel like I was the big sister protector. Yeah. I'm not surprised if I did do that. <laughs> I I remember it because you know, like during you know, it's not like it was now. Like there wasn't there wasn't a bunch of uh, uh, learning about racial sensitivity. No. People nope. were just saying all kind of wild stuff and it was just, it just seemed like the norm, you yes. know? So, yes. so, but when you hit me, it, obviously I remember it and I have a terrible memory, but I remember yeah. it and I was like, okay, this, this was wrong, right? Yeah. This, this was the yeah. wrong thing to say. And I immediately remember, I remember how I felt in that moment and I felt terrible, but um, it was like a lesson for me that day. And um, so I'm wondering if you spent a lot of your childhood having to defend your brother or being offended by people trying to attack your brother for it. Mm. That's a great question, Joe. Um, I think there was a period of time where people didn't even really know we were brother and sister unless they knew us personally, right? Like, cause you wouldn't automatically put us together as brother and sister. Um, I won't say necessarily I had to defend him. My brother was such a sweet kid. Like he was really, really nice and quiet. And I was feisty and loud sometimes um I never liked when people treated him badly so I I mean I was in the sixth grade the only time I I remember like sticking up for my brother or having to defend my brother was uh he would come home and say that some boys were picking on him at the bus stop so I thought my five foot sixth grader self would walk up and meet him at his bus stop and confront these boys who happened to be probably they had their growth spurt at that point. So they were probably about five, 10, six feet athletic guys. And I went up to them and my brother said that you're you know, you're picking on him and you're not going to mess with my big brother or you're going to have to deal with me. My brother was mortified. When I say my brother was mortified, he like grabbed me and walked us home and I'm telling them boys, they better leave my brother alone. And what made it more, I think, um, kind of cool is that the next year, uh, they were a year younger than my brother and my brother was leaving the junior high school. They took me on like their little sister. So when I went to school, they protected me, you know, like in junior high. But I, that's the only memory I really remember of like 
protecting him. Other, the only other thing would be, and it wouldn't be necessarily him, was like I said, when people would use the, because a lot of Black folks back then used the word chink, and they didn't think anything of it, right? Like, they didn't think of it as somebody saying nigger, but I would say it all the time, like, yo, like, that is just as offensive. Don't, don't say that, you know? I, I remember correcting that more than specifically defending my brother. Yeah, that's more what I meant when I asked the question, like being you're being in rooms and people, but being comfortable uh, yeah. using derogatory terms and you having to speak up or um, did you feel so at, at all the time you felt comfortable? As a, at a young age, before I really knew what I was doing, yes. Yeah. So as it got older, you kind of felt like, you know, it was like... I became more... Honestly, listening to your HBCU one, at Augsburg, I felt silenced more. When even though we talked about cultural sensitivity there a lot, I found myself um, becoming quiet for a couple of years. But yeah, I I would speak out a lot more friend-to-friend level or peer-to-peer level so you were biracial yes black white did you always know that yes um they give you from the adoption agency they give you what they call non-identifying information um and it basically gives you like uh um like mom and dad were this tall this cultural ethnicity um, a little bit of their likes and dislikes and a little bit about their family history if they knew it. So when did you start to discover or develop your own identity? <laughs> Still am. Mm. Um, I think it became apparent around the same age as most kids when they start asking who am I where do I come from like around 12 13 um that was the age when my parents gave when I was more inquisitive about it is the age my parents gave me that non-identifying information um I was 12 years old when I got that and and then like when you're talking about what circles were you traveling in because I mean (laughs) St. Paul to St. Paul. That was a shift. Yeah. Um, to be honest, um, grade school was all kinds of friends. White, Black, Asian, Hispanic. I, I think I had every rainbow of friends. And my mom specifically chose schools and neighborhood where we would live, where we would be um, in a very diverse environment because our family was completely white. Aside from my dad's side of the family, there was um, two other kids that were adopted that were actually biracial, which I always made it feel a little connected amongst the whole family of very white Minnesotans. Um, I, um, but in junior high, I it wasn't just being adopted. It was very much a cultural shift in who your friends were. And I think um, when I not, I think subconsciously after I read that at a 12 year old brain, my brain conceptualized that I was given away because I was black. 
and I wasn't loved and it made me hate the white side of me, of my parents, and like interracial couples. So like, um, it was like a, a weird shift because here I'm adopted by people who wanted to have kids, who loved us. I mean, you could not tell Bob or Terry that we were not their kids. And I became angry and I like, I personified blackness. Like it was like what, what blackness was at that age, you know, super baggy clothes, a shift in my vernacular. It was like F all white people, F mixed race couples, people shouldn't interrace. I mean, it was, it was a complete shift. And um, I had, I still had some, I mean, I, I never like stopped being friends with people, but I definitely didn't lean towards those friends. I embraced my blackness entirely. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was junior high. Yeah. And you say yeah. your brain, your brain conceptualized that you were given away because yes. you were black. Yep. And wasn't loved. Yeah. 100%. And so instead of internalizing a hatred for your blackness. Yeah. <laughs> you, you internalize a hatred for your whiteness. Yes. Because it was her choice because in the records, it said that she had never told my dad and that, and so when you're reading that as a kid, it's like, oh, it was her choice to give me away, not his. And then she never even told him about it. When did you ever confirm if that was the reason you were given away? So, <laughs> you know, years ago, I think everything in my life revolved around adoption and identification, right? Because it's all about the labels and how we identify. I always my first identifier is always adoption and then everything else, woman, blackness, everything else comes after that. Um, It's been such an integral part of my life in the most growth ways, I think. Um, In how I think about life, I think about people, it's really because of the adoption experience that I had. So I, my in in um my first poetry my first writings my college thesis they all have to do with adoption um and so that is how I defined myself probably up until I was 20 years old when my when I realized you know as 12 you think 20 years old is grown and it's not at 20, at, at 12, you think not having a college education, you can still make things happen the way you want to. And when you're, when I became 20, when I was single, I still wasn't um, sexually active at that point in my life. I really, um, there was a shift in my thought process because I was in college and I was, you know, dealing with 
um, young adult relationships. And I could completely see how maybe Blackness was, was a part, but I can also see how life factors are a huge part as well. Um, and when I did get the opportunity to meet her, I mean, um, the, it was after two times of her rejecting to meet me. And then finally, I wrote a letter directly to her, not directly to her. And I think um, the message was uh, very much gratitude for her giving me the opportunity to live because abortion is always an option she made sure that she put me in a home that was loving and she did um but there was always a piece of me uh, that wants to know who and what I come from like that's basic human nature and um I told her that um I wanted to really do a search for my biological dad, but I had concerns like you never told him, but was in an abusive relationship? Did he hurt you? Like I wanted to know those questions and only she can answer those. No adoption papers that I had received. No, she is the only person who can answer that question. And so she, she agreed to meet me. Um, We met one time for an hour and a half and that was all I ever got. But one of the questions I I said to her, she said to me that she had wished that whatever information she had given would have been enough for me, but she could see by my letter it wasn't. And I tell her, I wanted it to be enough too. I said, but there's always a piece of me that wanted to know, did you love me? And uh, I thought, I'm a really emotional person. Like I can cry. And I thought that her responses of not wanting to meet me and her logical letter that she wrote to the adoption agency to give to me made it be that she wasn't an emotional person. So in my preparation for our meeting, I made sure that I had my emotions intact because I didn't want to be emotional. I didn't want to scare her away because I thought that she was not emotional. But when I asked her that question, she cried. Like, and through her tears, she answered, I loved you. Of course, I loved you. I wanted the best for you. And I didn't have money. I couldn't take care of you. I loved you. And I wanted you to have a home where you felt loved. She said, I put you and your father in a box. And I put that box away. And she said, and she's crying saying this and I'm I'm looking at her and I'm like she does like I could feel her love and it healed um that piece that always defined it as not being loved right so wow so did you feel satisfied and you weren't given away because you were black yes yes I think I I I think that's always a piece though. I I will never say that I won't think that that's not a piece. I think that because she was a well-off Midwestern white woman and I don't believe that it would have been very well accepted in her family. Um, But I don't think that that was the only thing. And I don't think that she didn't love me because I was black. 
Um, I, I want to move forward a little bit, but before we do, I want to ask you: When you were developing, who did you find? What What did you find yourself being attracted to, as far as as boys and only black guys? <laughs> <laughs> I have never, to this day, and I'm 43, never dated a white guy. Really? No. Nope. Not even. They've been all black, and when I was young being adopted leaves you in like a look it can I don't know about other adoptees or people who have parents that may have been a little more um um active Mm -hmm. (laughs) um if you know you you think you might have a sibling out there that you don't know you know or a cousin that you don't know and so I I don't know why I didn't like light-skinned, I didn't like light-skinned guys, and I did not like white guys. I wanted chocolate, like very chocolate, because I don't know, in my brain, I thought that that meant they wouldn't be related to me. I don't know. Really? You yeah. Think that's, you think that's the only factor that attracted you to that? Well, I, I just like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> you got to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. <laughs> Somebody's gonna be happy about that. Honest, and after being an adult, like I would totally be down to date whatever. I have no none of those holdups anymore about relations um, and being like related to someone. So for me, I would date anybody, but I love black men. Like that's just that's that's. That's just what I like. It's what my preference is. So you say um, <clears throat> when you are, uh, when you're looking through your lens of, of the world, the first thing you look through is your adopted lens. Yep. That's number one. That's number one. And then, and then everything else falls in line. Yes. Do you think that's a, from your experience with talking with other, do you think that's a common, uh, common amongst other adoptees or you never had those conversations? Oh, it's kind of crazy. I have some adopted friends. Um, one friend who she's biracial, adopted by white family in Minnesota. So me and her actually have had some really uh, good conversations. I think, and my brother, me and my brother are the complete opposite adoptees. Um, I was always searching for something else. Like, um, I'm inquisitive by nature. I'm a um, humanistic by nature. My brother is very pragmatic, um, and in and his story is different. He didn't have any information to go off of about what his family was like or where he came from. He was dropped off at a um, fire station with a note that just gave his Korean name. And that was it. And so in his, when I used to, I talked to him as young adults and I'd ask him, how come he never like struggled like I did? How come he never like saw adoption the way I did? And, and, and for me, it was that balance um, back and forth about adoption, like it being amazing in one hand and then very hurtful and broken in another and you have these dualities that simultaneously exist. My brother would just, he, this is mom and dad and that's it. 
mm-hmm. and he was okay with that. He never had the urge to go to Korea and find his beginnings where me, I was like, Brian, you have the chance to go to Korea, go. The adoption agency was taking a lot of the Korean kids that had been adopted back to Korea to learn their cultural context. <clears throat> and he didn't want to go. He didn't, my parents were going to pay and, and like, let's go, let's go. And he did not want to go. And they didn't force us. My parents were very good about um, allowing us to find ourselves. When I had the opportunity in high school to go go to Ghana, West Africa, um, with the Stair Step Foundation, they took um, kids. They would take eight kids and eight uh, mentors in the community of African descent and take you back and 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 did a whole amazing program. That was life changing for me. And when I got the opportunity, one of my mentors from a women's group that I was in in high school nominated me to go. That changed my life. Like. I went, my mom and dad, we went to the meetings. They saw that it was a, a, an amazing organization and they supported 100% of me going. And I think that was one of the most trans- transformational moments of, in my life as a young adult. I was 15, 16 when I went. It sounds like when you talk, <clears throat> like you have, like you early on identified yourself as a Black. 100%. Yeah. So when I yeah, I never saw myself as a white woman. And because I identified myself so much as a black woman, it was hard. Like I remember hating what people would call stereotypical light skinned girl, light skinned girl with long hair and bougie. Cause so I would like negate the whole stereotype. I was gonna be a tomboy hair pulled back in a ponytail and I was going to be rough. I wasn't going to be pretty and, and prissy. Like it Boogie just, bang, huh? <laughs> you remember that? Oh, that Boogie curly bangs. bang that was like yeah. too short. I, I ain't know that. what to do with my hair back then. Okay. <laughs> I definitely remember it. <laughs> I think everybody back then. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, always, I always did identify as biracial or black. It was, it was never, I never saw myself any other way. So when you started getting triggered over, you know, racism, racial discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, did you feel comfortable at home or did you start isolating? Very good question, Joe. I began isolating. Mm-hmm. I pushed in the streets, in school. I was the good girl. I was very polite. Um, I didn't get in trouble in school other than talking too much because <laughs> I'm uh, I I'm an introvert. I think I'm an introvert, but I'm an extrovert. Ext- I'm an extrovert introvert. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but I would get in trouble for talking. But um, I began isolating one hundred percent. I was very angry and I pushed my parents and probably my brother away. Um, I would call my parents racist. I would curse them out. I was, it was very, um, I was very angry. My mom didn't know why, like she was trying to figure out like what was the trigger or what happened. I just, 
um, I hated all white people for a period of time. Uh, but it was more self-hatred or um, not understanding my my bio mom's process. That was my literally all my teen years, mm. all of my teen years from from 13 to 19. I, I, I apologize to my mom. I think even when she was on her hospice bed, you know, in 2020, I was apologizing for that terrible teen behavior, isolation. Did you uh, have moments where you were wanting to uh, have, have been adopted into a Black home? Yes. And actually, there were there was a black family down the block that um, we were never close to them, but you could tell they had an issue with this white family having me. And so I always questioned like why I wasn't placed in may even maybe like because when I was doing all this research as a young adult like early 20s there apparently were options where um like interracial couples could adopt or whatever and these were things that they would ask the problem was is a lot of black people at that time or interracial couples at that time didn't exist and so it was white parent white for a white baby, if my parents would have want, like specifically wanted a white baby, they would have had to wait like five years. Like mm-hmm. it was a wait list for white babies. It was so, I think my parents did an amazing job for the resources that they were given. Um, I don't think it, it it's, I think even parents who give birth to multiracial kids, I think there's these dynamics that you have to think about because you're living a dual life, I think, and especially in our society. When you, um, when, when you say you were triggered and you started isolating, like, were you actually having actual debates or was it just you lashing out and they were just looking at you like, what the hell's going on? Yeah, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was not able to articulate myself back then the way I am able to do now. So I would say it was a lash. It was more of a lash out, not being able to articulate. But my mom, even back then, I, I, I she always had resources for me I don't even know how she even found them she would always find resources so it was either community members that they would all of a sudden come around or I'd go to or a group I'd be in um and at that time I think at 13 or 14 they had found some kind of counselor for me to talk to and my mom said at one point when in one of my moments of just lashing out she said that I said to her, when are you going to give the F up on me? She said, just give the F up. She, that's what she said. I said, and she, and she said, she looked at me and she was like, is that what's going on? Like you're pushing us. A, oh, she was like, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And she said there was something that changed in me. And though that I was still kind of lashing out, it was in a different way. It was kind of like, um, like 
you like I literally as a child I remember feeling not love I remember that feeling like because I had it in well into my adult life and so I could see like that like as kids try to process who they are in early childhood development like you're wanting to know at your core am I loved and who am I like what what am I made up of and I think to hear that, and my mom treated me that way. She never let me go. No matter how many times I threatened to run away, no matter how many times I was going off in the house, she always was there. Always, 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 always. She loved us unconditionally. My dad would get a little frustrated, a little more frustrated. Mm. Um, but even still, like they, it, um, the push away wasn't, met with being pushed away where a lot of parents I think even do that with their own biological kids when they're going crazy in their teen years you like they gotta go like you're gonna be disrespecting me you gotta go you know um my parents didn't do that to me that's a lot that's a lot um well I'm overwhelmed yeah I remember uh the house was yellow wasn't it it is. It still is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Still yellow. And I it remember is a little yellow, and people refer. People remember that for some reason. It yeah, is yellow. Y'all, you guys, you literally my next door neighbors. Okay. Yes. So, uh, and I, <laughs> I so remember great. a couple things that I remember. I remember the house being yellow. I remember feeling like y'all was the only house on the block with a fence. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I don't know why, but it feels like y'all. And there was a bunch <laughs> of stuff in your front yard and I remember like I don't know where it was but I remember a sign that said Valentine's yeah um and I was yeah. more you know even though I knew everything that was not not everything but I knew that you had white parents and an Asian brother and all that yeah I was more fascinated with by the fact that your last name was Valentine than anything. it's so cute right <laughs> I was like that's the dopest thing Facts. ever Facts. um <laughs> so with with uh and I was wondering because I always hear the the the, the, um, the myth that you know uh, adoptees have just all these unmet needs and and it sounds like you have some unmet needs but not in the way that like uh, left you kind of without love or without but there was there was some unmet needs obviously that that you are now expressing as I'm listening to you that do you believe any of those showed up in your adult relationships huh. yeah I do this I do this good <laughs> 100% Joe uh-huh. 100% tell me about in it. in romantic relationships and friendships um <clears throat> one thing I will say about myself though is that I've always been self-searching um, to understand why I do the things I do. So like, I think the beginning of that real deep work started when I was 20. And looking back and talking with my mom about um, why I pushed away. Mm-hmm. And it was because <laughs> I had the sweetest, kindest boyfriend anyone could ever have when I was 19, 20. 
And I was so mean to him. I was so mean to him. And I told my mom, mom, I am seeing similarity because I knew he loved me. I knew he did. I cared about him. I didn't love him the way I could see. It was apparent to everybody. He was a very kind person. And um, I told my mom, mom, I'm doing things to him that I used to do to you. It was almost like being fearful of that kind of love at that age. I was not prepared for it. And um, I remember talking with my mom about it and, and feeling bad. But at that point in my life, I wasn't um, emotionally mature enough to really process that in order to be in that relationship. And so I broke up with him. And it was the, I think that's been the hardest breakup I've ever had because it wasn't a breakup over what people say breakups are usually over cheating or something like that. It was because I didn't feel like I loved him the way he loved me. But I was, I really think um, in that, at that, I was afraid to be loved. I didn't know how to accept love, if that makes sense. Really? Um, I think that's the only relationship that I really feel like triggered my adoption issues. And then the rest have just been <laughs> regular dating stuff, just mm. whatever. I think that would, for me, that was the most, um, um, it was the one relationship that triggered me to start self-reflecting on wanting to kind of heal those inner inner hurts I guess per se because I never wanted to treat somebody badly because of my pain right um my friendships um in my young life were very um about wanting to be loved and accepted so I never communicated when I'd be angry with somebody I never communicated what I wanted or needed in friendships or relationships I always made myself I I became a person that I I didn't want to be conflict so whatever I observed I've always been a very observant person whatever I observed that I thought that they needed or wanted that's what I would want to do because I wanted to feel loved and I didn't want people to leave me. And I wanted to, I wanted them to love me. And I felt the only way to be loved was to be whatever it was that they wanted or needed. Because you had a fear of abandonment. Yes. Yep. When do you feel like you stopped doing that or have you stopped? How old is Jackson? <laughs> That's when I stopped. <laughs> That's when I stopped. You think it has anything to do with the fact that he definitely can't abandon you? He's got to stay? <laughs> he better. No. <laughs> no. Um, you know, there's always points in our life that are transitional, right? Or transformational. Mm -hmm. And Jackson was absolutely transformational. Um, I was much older having a kid, right? Like I was 38. They call it a geriatric pregnancy over 35. So you already <laughs> geriatric? 
That sounds old. Yo, any <laughs> woman, any woman listening, if you go to the doctor at 35 and you tell them you're pregnant, automatically says geriatric pregnancy. Oh, that's okay? not right. That's not it's right. not. It's not. Anyway, <laughs> I was 38 having Jackson. And um, having a kid changes your life, period. And I say this to anyone, whether the baby was able to come full term or not, by whatever choices were made, you were a parent, period. If there was ever um, a piece of your life, for a man, a piece of you or that woman, you've been a parent. So I consider people parents um, no matter what if there was ever life at any point in you um that transformed me into learning how to take care of me first so that I could be the best mom for him and that's what transformed me not so much his love for me but my love for him like Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the best version of myself and granted it's it was a lot of work that I did Prior to him, I think that at, at that moment, I was ready to be that deeply transformed as well. Did you feel, uh, I mean, 38, you know, having a baby, mm-hmm. did you, were you feeling pressure to, to have your own child, yes. especially? Yes. Given, did it have anything to do with the fact that you were adopted? Yes. All of that. Joe, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I think. I mean, my friends used to tell me, stop. T- when I was young, like young and energetic and cute, I literally would say I wanted 10 kids. I wanted a big family. I wanted a bunch of kids so they could have a bunch of siblings that they could learn life with. That's what I wanted. My friends would be like, Brenda, you can't tell a guy that when you're dating. I was like, why not? <laughs> Guys ain't gonna marry. They don't want to marry somebody who wants tickets. But I was honest. I would be honest about that. I really did want a lot of kids. And then, you know, my friends in um, my mid twenties started getting married, started having kids, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm not ready for that. Mm-mm. I wasn't ready at all." Thirty came around, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm not. I'm not ready. I'm not. I was not ready." for a committed relationship like that the responsibility let me say it was to me I saw marriage and kids as the ultimate responsibility and I used to tell all my friends everybody says oh you look so young girl you look so young because I'm not married and I don't have kids I don't got another <laughs> kid. because those relationships I think take the most out of you but also what I'm learning now is it also can give you the most right so <clears throat> they take a lot of work and I didn't, I wasn't <clears throat> ready for that. <laughs> and then 30 hit and I had a boyfriend that I thought this, the only person I ever thought I was going to marry. Mm-hmm. And he was not treating me the way I felt like I wanted to be treated. And we were on and off, but it was like, you're not what I envisioned. I loved his family, but the relationship wasn't what I wanted couple years go by 35 I hit 35 and the alarm went off in my brain and I was like oh my god geriatric yes (laughs) and at that point I didn't know they were going to call me a geriatric pregnancy but 
at 35, it was like this alarm went off in my head and was like, oh my God, what if I can't get pregnant? I'd never been pregnant. I'd never been in like a relationship where I felt like I was gonna even wanted to be proposed to. And all of a sudden at 35, I was like, oh my God, I was supposed to be working at trying to get into a relationship. When am I gonna have kids? there's no way I could have 10 kids now. And all of a sudden it was like, all these things come flooding in. I just moved to DC, maybe like a couple years prior, dating sucked in this area. And I was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? I'm 35 and I don't even have someone I'm in love with. And I wanted a family and, you know, I didn't have any blood and I, I love my family, but I wanted some, I would always say the joke of, I just want somebody, even if they have the little same crooked toes that I have, or, you know, like I, I, they don't got to look just like me, but I just want this. Like I, and I started being like, I wanted, I wanted at least one. And then I was like, and then I could adopt. And then I would meet guys that would say, no, I'm not having a kid. That's not my blood. And it just was like all these like weird things that started flooding in at 35. And then I met Jackson's dad and Jackson's here. (laughs) So, um, it, it, at 35 was my alarm. And I, I've had some conversations with younger women that are starting to have that alarm at like 30 and they start saying oh well I tell them do not settle go get your body tested before you start having your alarm go off and then once you get that information then start adjusting your life but never ever ever make the decision to have a kid because your alarms are going off ever Mm. ever well, your life is just so layered. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't worry. What are you apologizing for? <laughs> don't, don't, don't apologize. Don't apologize. Um, it's just a lot. There's a lot. I, mean, I knew it was a lot, but even more, I see that uh, even more than I expected. Um, because I haven't even gotten to you uh, getting getting to meet your bio parents. No. So that's where I'm going to go now. Uh, <laughs> <gasps> okay. I really don't want to cry. I'm... I, Okay. Mm. So talk to me about that process. The and search journey. The search journey, yeah. You finally first of all, when did it when did it become mm. like, okay, I'm I'm definitely finding them and I'm not gonna let up on this. So what's interesting is I've always wanted to search and my parents were very um supportive. So I mean, they always knew I wanted to search. So there were, it was miniature processes, mm-hmm. but it started right at 18. As soon as I could with contacting the adoption agency, you know, they have this little counseling sessions that you can go to and, you know, you can send out a little paperwork here. I did a lot of adoption research all every, every stage of my life. And, um, I would do little things here and there. And then when I would get like the tiniest, like no or a little difficulty, I'd stop because I would always get um, very emotional. You know, like uh, I said, I'm a crier. So like I process in release by crying. So Mm -hmm. I never held on 
to things per se, um, but I I definitely really I would release at each moment because um, they're scary. Those no's are very scary. The thought of being rejected as an adult from those parents is scary um, in the easiest form to to say to you to work uh, a word to describe though that feeling is scary. Um, Mm -hmm. so for me um I write about it because I'm passionate about it so it sparked more search options right so I contacted the adoption agency and um I was ready for the actual search for my biological mom and they tell you to write like a letter of intent is what they call it. And it's just talking about your life and where you are now, how your childhood was and all these kinds of things. So I wrote, hand wrote, <laughs> hand wrote like a five page, I think letter, you know, to her, just th one thanking her for life. And then sure. talking about how great my family structure is and, you know, and my friends and community school, all that. The adoption agency finds her within, I want to say, so they tell you, okay, we'll contact you when we're going to actually start your search. You got to put a deposit down and then they're going to start your search. I think they called me like a couple weeks after I sent it in and said, okay, we're going to start your search. And like four days later, they called me. So they found her very quickly. So whatever information they had had, um, it was enough information. Mm. um <clears throat> and they found her they called me and said that she said that she did not want the letter that was sent Jeez. they she didn't want it read to her and they said that <clears throat> she was gonna decline the chance to meet me <clears throat> due to family circumstances yeah and um I remember the social worker I'm sure she was I know you know you have interns <laughs> and she you could hear her sadness for it mm -hmm. and she was like I don't think she even knows what it's like to be adopted um and I cried. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> when I called my mom and I called my best friends at the time, everybody's heart broke at the same time my mom said that you know they were told that she would want to meet me when I became of age like I guess I don't you know if the social workers kind of talk to them about that like when the child comes of age like you know is the parent gonna want to meet them and a, my mom said they were always under the impression that she would and my mom said that I mean, they were always very supportive. I was about 20. I was early 20s at this time, maybe like 22, 23. 
And um, my mom said that um, she was heartbroken. You know, she she was heartbroken for me. Um, and that just crushed me. It was <clears throat> always processed pretty much my entire life. I always process in the negative, which means I always think the worst. I hope for the best, but I always think the worst. Like I always think of the worst scenario. And even though that is what I thought, it was still heartbreaking at the time. So kind of worked through that a little bit. Not even, I didn't do, I didn't go to therapy at that time, but I think I processed in my own brain. I processed with my family and I processed in my writing at at that time in my life, a lot of how I expressed my inner emotions was through my poetry. And um, I contacted them. Like, I mean, like when she's telling you the information, your brain kind of goes to Charlie Brown. Like you, you don't hear much after whatever that um, news is that you're hearing that's disappointing, right? And so, um, I took a couple of days to contemplate or to think of what I wanted to do. And I actually, they ended up reaching back. They reached out to me because apparently she had sent a letter. But again, the lady tells, it's the same girl. And she says, oh, she says, I, I hate to keep saying this. She was like, I don't think she knows what it's like to be adopted. And I said, but she wrote me a letter. This isn't a letter that, you guys got when I was born and I wasn't a, I mean, I was a baby, but I wasn't me. And I said, she's writing me a letter. And I was like, she didn't read mine, but she wrote me. This letter is, is not to Brenda because she didn't want to know any information, but it was to me. And so I read the letter and I was, it was like three paragraphs. And, and it's telling me that, you know, she made the decision to give me up, you know, based on time and circumstance. And, you know, um, there's no family history that she needs to give me because, you know, as long as I go to the doctor, I would know. And then she says, I'm going to leave it as I did many years ago, wishing you a long, healthy, happy life. Like there was hardly anything in this letter, right? Oh, God. That sounds so dismissive. It, it felt dismissive right Mm -hmm. like and then I felt like she didn't even read my letter had she read my letter half of this she wouldn't even have had to write you know like but and then when I read it to like my mom and my best friends that like everybody's response was she's a bitch and it hurt me I didn't want people to be angry at her I wasn't angry at her Mm -hmm. I was sad but And so I stopped sharing. I stopped sharing my pain and hurt because it was hurting the people that I love too because they saw me hurt, right? Or they were having their own emotional responses to what was going on, right? So I stopped sharing it out loud. (laughs) Didn't stop feeling it, but I stopped sharing it out loud because to me, that letter was everything because even though it barely said anything, it was still for me. Like, Mm -hmm. and that meant a lot. So 
I started asking them about the bio dad. I said in the paperwork, it said the bio dad doesn't want, um, doesn't want, didn't know. I was like, how do we go about doing a search for him? I said, because I understand it's hurtful, but I, I will accept what she's saying. You know, she doesn't want to meet me due to her life circumstances or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what about him? How do, how do I do a search for him? Well, they said because he was a pituitive father was the word they use, which is an alleged father. He didn't sign any paperwork. Um, it would need to be court ordered. Mm. And I said, well, how do I go about doing that? And they were like, well, you got to petition the court for your adoption records. But we're not quite sure how that would work because the biological mom has now signed paperwork to close your records. What? So they did that. And um I petitioned the court this was after I graduated college I was working at Augsburg College and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next and I wanted to work with families with foster and adopted kids because that has been my entire life like that is what I wanted to do so I went to seminary in San Diego um, for marital and family therapy Right before I left is when I petitioned the court um, and hadn't heard anything back. I think it got lost in the court system like two or three times and I had to resend it, moved to California. And the, I mean, (laughs) I called the court so much the girl knew my first name. Like, okay, Brenda, the judge is going to sign it this day or, you know, it's going to be this thing. I was like, you clearly know who I am. Why, you know, it was just, it was such a long process. Well, they, the judge finally signs it. And what, what they end up doing was um, they granted me my father's information in my record, right? So in San Diego, I was probably about, probably a couple years later. I always feel like I had a couple years in between each process. So the adoption agency gives me a redacted record. So they scratch out, black out all of my mother's information and they give me my father's first and last name, no middle initial, no birth date, no family information. And his name, I'm not gonna uh, say, it's like Mike Jones. Like, you know, Very it's common like, name. Uh, super common name. Like there's mm-hmm. a gazillion of them out there. Mm-hmm. So- they give me this information and then that it was in Colorado. The relationship took place in Colorado. So at this stage, I always thought I was from born made in Minnesota. But in this moment, I find out my dad's name, same name as my dad. And the first names, their first names are the exact wow. same. And um, I find out that I was conceived in Colorado. Like those were huge, not what city or anything in Colorado, but it said Colorado. And I was like, those were a huge moment, right? Mm-hmm. But I was like, I, I, I called the adoption agency and I'm like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. It's the same name as my dad. I was like, but I can't search for it, this name. I can't not like, what am I going to do? Did, did you sleep with some white woman in 1978? <laughs> Yeah. first are you black and then if you're black mm-hmm. did you sleep with it was like they didn't have a birth date so the age was an age range 
And I was like, this isn't, it doesn't help me find him. And they said, unfortunately, he would have to fight for his rights. How is he supposed to know to fight for his rights if he doesn't know I exist? And it's clearly stated in the records. So I petitioned the courts again. I said, and we actually had one of our college friends. He helped me do this. He did not do family law, but he actually put in his best foot forward. I mean, he worked for this where we got FaceTime with a judge in St. Paul. Um, The petition basically was stating that there was no way for me to do a search. And current adoption laws show that there was an issue back in 1978 when you're giving kids away and both parents have not signed off on this, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the other side represents the agency and my mom. The agency's interests are not for the kids. They are the interests of the parent that gave the child away. Let's let's start with the system that way adoptees do not have normal human rights we cannot access our original birth certificates without the biological parent giving consent you cannot know who or what you come from in any shape or form without the biological parent's consent and and this is that time before Ancestry.com or all these other kind of, these laws were in place where the adoptee did not have rights. It's the the parent that gave them away. And it didn't matter how old you were. I was 20 something at the time, uh, well into adult life, okay? So we petitioned the court stating, this person that you're saying needs to fight for his rights, can't fight for his rights because he has no idea I exist. Right. The judge, I, and when I tell you, I kept every single paperwork, I kept every person I talked to, I kept everything. There, the adoption agency and their lawyer legal team basically were saying that I was, I didn't have any reason to want this information other than to destroy the biological mother's life. And that is how they presented their case. The judge says, Miss Valentine, you have been very thorough. You have done the steps that you were told to do because they were trying to say I was trying to circumvent the system by doing these petitions when I had emails and letters that said that's what you all told me to do. Like, it's not me trying to be defiant. It's me trying to find out who who and what I come from. The judge tells me that he had been doing, and in and, and, and these cases, they're not open. Like, so the only people there were um, the girl who's been like a sister to me since junior high, my parents and my brother, and then their lawyer, legal team, and then my, the person who was representing me. Um, he said he'd been doing uh, the family law and adoption for years. Like, I think at that point, it was like, 15 or 20 years, like he was an older judge. He says, I have never seen a case like yours. He says, because most adoptees stop at the moms. They don't fight so hard to find their dad. And and he said, I wish that laws were in place where I could give you this information, but they're not. Unfortunately, 
I can't give you the information legally until adoption laws change. Jeez. We walk outside, I, you know, think blah, 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 walked out and I dropped to the ground in tears. <clears throat> I was devastated again, right? Like I, I, I always, um, at this point in my life, I always look at my journey like, um, I kept feeling like these were no's at those times in my life, right? Mm -hmm. I felt like those moments where I felt like God was telling me no, right? Mm -hmm. Where now I say they're not yet. Um, so it took a couple more years. And um, I talk about my story often. I talk about the struggle. And someone connected me with a private investigator that was able to get me my original birth certificate. Mm -hmm. And I found my biological mom. Now this is years. So San Diego is when I got my dad's name. Moved to DC in December of 2010. And somewhere around 2011 or 2012, I, I get this information and I don't want to blow up her spot. I don't want to devastate her life. I don't want her family members to know if she doesn't want them to know. So I begin to try to think about how do I approach this situation next, right? Mm -hmm. But I got to see a picture of her. And I was like, oh my God, this is what she looks like, you know, like, I didn't feel like she looked like me. I was really disappointed, to be honest. I always, everybody always thought because I had a little pointy nose and not super full lips. They were like, you're going to look like your mom, blah, blah, blah. Like everybody had ideas mm -hmm. of who I would look like or what I looked like. And I saw her face and I was like, eh, I don't look like her. <laughs> so I decide to write. Okay, I don't decide. I'm processing what's going on I had a friend who he was a therapist he's not my therapist but he was a good friend he was a good friend from junior high and I said um I was talking to him one day and I was like I just really want to reach out like I can't like it's that unction like you just you can't let it go right yeah. and um he was like write a letter he says even if you don't send it just write a letter so I go home, like he's giving me assignments, like he is my therapist, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I go home and I write a letter. It's a page and a half. And I send it to him. I He says, the first thing he said to me was he thought that my letter was going to be pages and pages long based on what he knows of me and what we've talked about. Like he thought, he was like, it was so succinct and it was to the point and so heartfelt. He says, my face is wet. I don't know what happened. <laughs> he was like, he says, you need to send that letter. And I was like, send it. Like, how am I going to send this letter? Like, I can't send it to her house. She's married. I can't. I don't want to. I literally, in my heart of hearts, I do not want to mess up this woman's life that she has. But I want to meet her. I wanted to meet her. And I wanted to know more, if I could, about my dad. Right. So I, now we got Google. <laughs> now <Yeah>. we got. <laughs> now you, know, you can find it. Now you can search find it. Search engines. 
So I found an email and I, no, LinkedIn. I found her on LinkedIn because to me, LinkedIn was more the most private way to do it, right? Because okay. most, even spouses, you're not, you're, you may check their email, but you're not checking their LinkedIn messages, right? Right, right. So I sent her a note that said my birthday in the title. I was like, I would, I would think that that would, you may remember, may not. I didn't want to say anything else. Like, what else am I going to put in the title? I, mm-hmm. I just, I put my birthday and I write a little message. And I said, I first want you to know that I, the adoption agency did not give your information because one of the things that was said in court was she was going to sue the adoption agency if her information got out. And I wanted to be Jesus very clear Christ. that the adoption agency had nothing to do with, um, nothing to do with it. Right. And, um, and so I said, read the attached letter. I'm open for whatever, even if you don't respond. And I attached the letter. It must've touched her because she responds and says one word, why? Or was it why or what? Or whatever it was, it was like one word. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, she responded because she could have deleted this message, left it alone, and never said anything about it. She could have yeah. it very easily. But I wrote her and I said, I really want to do the search for my father. And there are only questions that you can answer. I said, if you would be open for a conversation. I would very much appreciate it. I I said the private investigator was, I was very adamant with him that he not contact your family, that he not contact anybody that is known sources of you, that it could only be you. I said, because I do respect your privacy. I respect your decision to an extent, like where I'm, I, I, I'm not trying to blow up your spot mm-hmm. is really what I, I really wanted to make that clear. Yeah. And I never shared her name with people that I knew um, because it it was a very sensitive moment. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it was I wouldn't I wouldn't want anybody to think in their heart because they feel compelled about something. I I was very I'm I'm very protective of my bio mom. Mm -hmm. I'm very protective of her secret to an extent. I'm not going to do it at the detriment of myself, but I will respect that space, right? So she emailed me back and said, if I were to agree, it was very, she was very, very business. This is why leading into the meeting, I thought I was going in with someone who didn't have emotions, Mm -hmm. okay? So I'm, this is getting very long-winded. So she agrees to meet me as long as I agree to keep her name private from everybody that I know. Um, and I, I, and, and she wants to meet me. I'm living in DC. She didn't know I lived in DC. She said, I can meet. I asked for a phone call. Yeah. But she asked to meet me, get home, 
take quiet time to myself. Everybody wants to talk. I shut everybody out. I take my time, get there early. And I sit down, give the waitress my card because I didn't even want, I, this was for me. I knew she was doing this for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I had sent her pictures. So she walks up to me and she says my name and I say her name and I go to shake her hand and she shakes her head and she gives me a hug, like a very, very unexpected hug. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we sit there a little awkward and we meet. Um, we talk general. I, I talked about the the first question that brought her to tears, right? Like mm-hmm. she was very emotional about me asking, was I loved? Like that was that was really at the core of it, was I loved? And to see her emotions, it didn't make me feel good as in, ha ha, I'm glad she's crying. It made me feel good to know that I was loved. You know, like her giving me up was out of love. Her giving me to a family that loved me unconditionally, like her, her, her hopes, her dreams, her prayers. You know, she said, I pray to God to to do what I couldn't, you know? And when she was crying about that, the way I broke that that sadness up was, as I told her, I was like, I'm sorry, I broke your box, you know? Cause she said she put me and my dad in this box and put this box away, but clearly these emotions are in you, you know? And she laughed and we kind of let it light. And then I said, this really just, as I stated in my letter, I really want to do a search for my dad. And I said, and I need to make sure that I'm not putting myself in danger or you in danger. I was like, I just want to know. And she starts bawling and my throat clogs up. Mm -hmm. But she says, no, no, he never hurt me. She said, um, she said it again. I put, you know, I, I put that relationship in you in the past. She said, um, I, it's what I said in the, the, like she could barely get these words. Now, when I said, was I loved? I mean, she was crying, but she could get her words out. In this moment, she couldn't even get her words out. Mm-hmm. And, but all I needed to hear was he didn't hurt you. And he didn't, like, there was no, you know, that. And she didn't talk about the relationship. She didn't talk about her family. Um, we talked about our personalities and things that we like, but that was it. But she did not, I couldn't, I literally had a 25 million questions I wanted to ask about my dad, but with that emotional response and you see a human sitting across, there was no way I could ask any more questions. Like she was, it was, it was a lot. And at that time in my life, I didn't understand it fully. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was the only meeting I've ever had with her. That was the only conversation I've ever had with her. There was no more contact after that. I emailed her a couple of times with no responses. Okay, so that was it. That was my one meeting. And I will tell you, it was the single most healing moment in my life because I then understood that I was loved. Okay. It was disappointing because she still wants me to be a secret, right? Like I'm not good enough to be celebrated. I'm not good enough to accept into your life. That is how I processed it, even as an adult. Mm-hmm. 
So years go by. I, I, I was actually dating Jackson's dad at the time. We weren't nowhere near, Jackson wasn't even a thought at that time, but we were dating. We were in an on and off situation. And then I get pregnant, um, maybe like a year later. And then I have Jackson. Jackson comes out and I'm looking at him and I'm like, he don't look like me, but he don't look like his daddy either. Who does he look like? Brought up a whole new slew, right? Like it's all of these things that I, you, I mean, until you have a kid, you just don't know what's going to be brought out of you, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, I want to know who my dad is. Like my dad, for whatever reasons, even though I was always searching for my mom, my dad, I, I fought, I fought to try to find my dad. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was important for me, for him to know that I exist and what he chose with that information would be his. Right. So one of my good friends from grade school had just done the ancestry DNA. I think I had went home that Christmas. Um, Jackson was only like six months, seven months old. She was like, do ancestry. You know, I connected with my dad and da, 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 da. And she knows her family. She was just looking for like, like seeing what their makeup is and what their family is. Right. So I was like, okay, spin the tube. Got it. Spin the tube, send it off. And I'm like, mm, what's going to happen? Because at this point with ancestry.com, it changes the game for adoptees. It mm-hmm. changes the legal game for adoptees because you can't tell us that's, there's nothing. You, it's yeah. just, it's out there, right? Yeah. I still want to protect her as much as possible, but DNA doesn't lie, right? So you connect with certain people, but I hid my name. So it's, my name's not on there. So even if I were to connect, they'd be like, well, it's connected to somebody in our, and I connected with a couple of people in her family. Mm. And I never reached out. One reached out to me at one point And I just, I was adopted. I just said I was adopted. It was a closed adoption and I'm not looking for parents. I just wanted to know my ethnicities. That's all I said. And I shut it down because to me, that's her secret to tell. That's not my secret to tell. I was looking for my dad. Three years go by and I don't connect. I sent like five, six messages to different people that were set. I never connected closely with anybody. There was one guy that I connected with in the beginning um, as like a second cousin, but he was younger than me. He was out in California and he was adopted. <laughs> so we were both like, well, both on here for the we're on here for the same thing, but we both don't know any information. And so um, <laughs> October, October 4th, 2020, I got a notification. I go on Ancestry and there's a new second cousin on there. So finally I get this and I go and I write this lady a message. I send it. I said, hey. Mike Jones is my dad. He wouldn't have known I exist. You know, the relationship took place in Colorado sometime in 19, you know, April, Mm -hmm. 1978. I was born in, in late 1978, adopted in 79. I was like, blah. I was like, this ain't gonna go nowhere. Just like every other letter, but I'm gonna send it. The next morning I get a message. Yes. My mother, sister has a son by that name. This is exciting. Here's my information. 
please feel free to contact me. Joe, I think I felt like I was in a dream. Like he literally was a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have very little information. I told her I didn't have birthday, anything. So me and her, I we're emailing at first, but then we were like, let's just call each other. And this is like early in the morning and she's a couple hours behind me. She tells me um, about my dad. She says he had no kids, no kids in his life. He was 69 years old that um, he was such a, a cool, like she was like, he is something else. She was like, my kids, our family is super close. My kids call him uncle Mikey. And um, she was like, our family is so close. She said, I, t- and I told her about my mom, my mom's, she was like, I, I told her that if that was his response, that would be okay. And, um, and she says, I don't think that'll be his response. I can't tell you what it'll be, but I don't think that'll be his response. She said, but I'm going to contact him and I'll call you back. So the whole day goes by and I'm like calling my mom. I only called two people. I called my mom and I called one of my really close friends in Chicago. And I only told them because I was like, I don't want to talk about it to anybody else Mm -hmm. right now. I just wanted to figure out what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. She calls me back and Jackson's with me that weekend. Our our custody situation was, I have the first weekends of the month. So Jackson was actually with me. So he's listening. Three-year-old ears is listening, okay? And the girl calls me back and she says, he just wanted to know what your mom's name was. She said, you didn't tell me that information. Of course I did, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not. And I was like, oh, I was like, um, she said, but she said his response was, well, it's a possibility. 78 was a busy year. <laughs> when I get to know my dad, it completely makes sense. My dad was, she was, you know, very well loved but he definitely is a lady's boy, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's super cool guy. So she says, he said for you, absolutely can call him. So she gave me his number. And, I, and I'm and i like, I, I start like, hard as thumping. I was like, oh my, oh my God. Jackson, three years old, says, mommy, me and, me and raising Jackson has been a whole, it's, that's a whole nother story, but very much I teach my son about emotional intelligence from the moment he could talk. So mm-hmm. like we talk about how to calm yourself or how to express yourself and all these kinds of things. So he said, mommy, take a deep breath. Watch me. <gasps> so I, I was like, I do need to take some deep breaths. So I take a deep breath and I call him and, um, as soon as I say his name, Jackson says, hello, grandfather. Oh, my God. And my dad doesn't respond. But, you know, I was like, Jackson, I, I know I turn red very easily. So I, if he would have saw my face, my face would have been bright red. So I was like, this is our first conversation. Like, this not what, you know, you don't just say grandfather. I didn't say dad right away, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, right. And um, he, the first question he asked me was my, my mom's name. And I say it. And he gets quiet and he starts crying. And he says, I know exactly who that is. You are mine. I don't need a DNA test. You're mine. 
And I, it was like <clears throat> choked up. And then he, he just start before I could even say anything else, he starts describing her from the description. He starts describing her and it's describing what I know of her. Like she's tall, beautiful. He says she was one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. And I was like, what? Like, what is going on right now? Me and him stayed on the phone until about one or two o'clock in the morning, just talking. And I was telling him about what I, you know, the process and that this moment is coming. Like, he's not just like, he's talking to me. He's not pushing me away. He's not trying to deny it. It was full acceptance right away. Right. Mm-hmm. I did not prepare for for that. I did not prepare for that love. I did not prepare for him to embrace me <clears throat> so fully. I didn't prepare that he wouldn't have any kids. I just knew I was going to have like five brothers, <laughs> you know, six sisters somewhere like but we talked until about one o'clock in the morning. And then I sent him like the letter I sent her. I sent him like the petitions that I did and things like that. And he read them and called me back. And we stayed on the phone till the morning. And every day from that moment, he called me twice a day. Um, once in the morning, once in the afternoon or once at night, checking on me and Jackson. Um, I met him um, two weeks later. and then. Four weeks later was when my mom <clears throat> went into hospice <clears throat> and he was planning on coming out here to DC and he flew to Minnesota instead to meet my mom before she died. And um, all of that is a whole nother, just a lot of amazing moments in the brief time because then he died in January of 2021, only three months after meeting. So in three month time span, you lost your your mom, and then you lost your bio dad. After this long journey of trying to connect that those two lives, yes. <clears throat> um, so I guess you can look at it as it's was right on time. Absolutely, one hundred percent. He felt that way and made it known. At all that we both did. It was godsend. Well, you know that that uh, that whole entire story was amazing. Uh, it it, uh, it definitely brings me to a whole other set of questions, but uh, yes. something we can talk offline about. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. Uh, um, but I do want to leave that where it is yes. right now, and then ask you what. If there's somebody out there, another little Brenda that's experiencing the same thing, you know, this entire journey, what would you say to her or him? Uh, What would you impart on them, basically, I guess? I have thought a lot about that since finding my dad. And I will say, um, I am not far away from having to learn how to deal with not knowing, right? Like to learn how to live with the void. And if that is what we have to do, 
it is definitely doable in embracing and loving those around. But if you have that unction in you and it's in your heart, no matter what, because there were people who told me to stop because I have such amazing parents and some people don't even get one set of parents. Why would I keep searching? I tell everybody and anybody, if you want to know, no, like keep searching, keep looking. And no matter what those outcomes were, right? Because I have one of each. I have one that says, I don't want any contact. And I have another that 100% embraced me, right? Not only him, but the entire family. And I would say no matter the outcome, we are created from a higher power. And we are here for a reason. We're here to love. We're here to be connected. And whatever it is that you feel in your heart, keep pushing for that. All right. And that's that stands alone. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, I really appreciate you uh, taking me into this. It was like watching a movie. <laughs> and uh, um, thank you for asking me to be on, Joe's an honor. You're yeah. doing amazing work. I'm yeah. very proud thank of you. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just grateful that, you know, I mean, I, I can't do the math in my head right now, but it's got to be like 1990. Wait, you, you don't, yeah, you don't have to do the math. Yeah. <laughs> do not date us. We got, a, we, got, we got a geriatric friendship. So. Back. Back. <laughs> so, but to still have the ability to uh, reach out to each other. I mean, like I said, that time frame for me, uh, and I don't, get, that's a whole other story, but yeah. My, my oldest nephew was born in that in that in that house. My, there's a lot of abuse yes. that went on in the house, and you know yes. that that's a time frame. For some reason, I remember things from that time frame, and yes. uh, you were a big piece of that for me. You know, in my yes. young my young life. So uh, I'm grateful to be able to sit down and have this conversation with you. Yes, it was very good. Thank you so much. A whole movie. A whole movie. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear uh, feedback on this one. So if you have time, send me a message. Let me know what you thought. Uh, this, you know, send some encouraging words. This story was incredible. Uh, you saw the emotion it took to get it out. Uh, just because it's your story and you've told it a million times doesn't make it easy to tell or easy to share. And uh, I'm really interested to hear uh, if anybody was impacted or affected by this one. Um, I know I was. Uh, I took something from it. And I am uh, very proud to have sat down and got an opportunity to provide these questions that, uh, I mean, not that I did much. Uh, story does all the work um but uh there's more to it there's more to it and and uh possibly could be a part two coming to this one and you know if you'd be interested in hearing that get tell me that in the feedback too i'm just curious i'm really curious to hear what everybody thought um but I, i know that i was impacted um in the story, I was impacted by the story, and um, I'm really proud to have shared. So, thank you again for listening to Vulnerability is the New Sexy. I really, really appreciate 
support. Thank you. Yeah.